sharing last night that I really believe the Lord just wants me to talk about the goodness of God, that God is a good God, that God is a faithful God. And people say they understand that, but as these verses say, and I read a lot of them last night, but let's just drop down to Mark chapter 7 and verse 13. Or verse 12, it says, And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered, and many such like things do ye. And I used this verse last night to say that people say that God is a good God and that God loves them, but then we have all of these religious doctrines and traditions that really diminish that and blind us and keep us deceived from really understanding these basic truths. So last night, what I started talking about was the wrong interpretation and application of the sovereignty of God. I will accept that God is sovereign if you'll use a dictionary definition, but if you use the religious definition of sovereign where God controls everything and God is responsible for the mayhem and the terrible things going on in this world, that's wrong. And that is a tradition and doctrine of man that voids the truth of the word. So I countered that last night pretty strong. Probably got a lot of people upset, but also probably helped a lot of people get set free. Amen. And uh, I just think that that is the worst doctrine going on in the body of Christ. Real quickly, let me answer just a couple of questions, and then I'm going to move on to another point this morning. But I had somebody ask about, well, what about chastisement? And they specifically quoted Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about that you all suffer chastisement. And if any does not suffer chastisement, then you're a bastard and not a son, is what it says over in Hebrews chapter 12. And so, I mean, those are pretty strong words. And it therefore it concludes that everybody gets chastised by God. I don't have a problem with that. that the word chastise just means correction. And God does correct us. But here's the problem. Again, it's not what the Word says. It's the way that it's been interpreted in the traditions and all of the extra stuff that's attached to it. People think that the way God chastises us is with sickness and with disease and with hardships and with problems. And that's not true. The Scripture reveals... Is that first or second uh, Timothy chapter 3 verse 16? Let me just find this quickly. I think it's second Timothy... 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. No, let's see. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This says that the word of God is how God corrects us and reproves us. And it, you don't need an additional way of receiving correction because it says that it makes the man of God perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God's method of correction is through the Word. He will speak to you and correct you. And I guarantee you, the Lord has spoken the Word to me sometimes that has just cut me to my core. It has broken me. I mean, it can be a severe correction. But God has one method of correction. Just like a godly parent doesn't sit there and shoot their child or stab them or hit them with cancer 
or knock them flat of their back. There's a right way to correct, and that's with the rod right on the rear end where you have some extra padding. That is a godly method of correction. You don't strike your child with uh, things and hit them and beat them. That would be child abuse. God corrects us, yes. The Bible teaches correction, but it's wrong to interpret it that the way he corrects us is with sickness, with disease, with poverty, and with all of these other kind of things. God corrects us through the Word. So really, there's there's no conflict here. There's no problem unless you've already got a prejudice, a predisposition, an interpretation that sickness and disease is God's method of doing that. That's not what the Word says. That is not God's way of doing things. You know, I could keep answering questions. I've opened up a a box of worms in a sense because there's so much religious tradition. Somebody's thinking about, well, what about Paul's thorn in the flesh? I hadn't got time to teach on Paul's thorn in the flesh, but God didn't smite him with some disease that made him have runny, puffy eyes. That's a religious interpretation. The scripture makes it very clear. I've got a teaching out there entitled, uh, God Wants You Well... And I spent an hour dealing with Paul's thorn in the flesh and Trophimus being left at Miletum sick and Timothy taking a little wine for his stomach. Say, none of those things are teaching that God puts sickness on you to teach you something. And, I, and it's all answered in that teaching on God wants you well. So anyway, you can check that out. Let me mention some other things. Over in uh, the Old Testament, Psalms chapter 78 and verse 49. Let me turn over and read this. Psalm 78, 49, it says that um, he cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. And there's a number of scriptures. Also in Isaiah chapter 45, I believe it's verse 7, it says that I create light and darkness. I create... um, good, I think it is, and evil. And there's another scripture like over in 1 Samuel 16, 14, where it says that the Lord sent an evil spirit from the Lord upon Saul that tormented him. Some people use things like that to say, well, see, God right there did evil. God is doing these bad things. Those instances that I just quoted can all be dealt with by just looking at the word evil The old English word evil. Matter of fact, if you look the word evil up in a dictionary, one of the definitions of evil is bad. And to prove it, over in uh, Jeremiah chapter 24, let me just read this passage to you. Here is a good example from the King James Version that will explain this. In Jeremiah chapter 24, the Lord told Jeremiah to look and tell him what he saw. And uh, in verse 2, here's Jeremiah said, One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs that could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Now, is this talking about that the figs are demonic? It's just a word, it's an old English word that meant bad. When God said, this is good, then that automatically made anything else bad. So he created good and bad. He, he defined what good and bad is. 
When the Lord sent an evil spirit from the Lord, it wasn't a demonic spirit. It was a godly spirit, but it accomplished something bad from Saul's perspective. It was punishment. It was judgment upon him. And so all of those instances do not violate anything that I was saying last night. God doesn't send demonic things. God doesn't use the devil. It's just that that was an old English word that talks about that, uh, you know, things were evil, like these figs. They weren't demonic. They were just rotten. It was bad. And God, in the old covenant, and here's, here's the point that I'm wanting to start dealing with this morning. The old covenant does show God smiting people, hitting people, judging people. For instance, Uzziah, a king, went in and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And kings weren't supposed to do that. And the priest stood in his way and said, it's not, it doesn't pertain unto you to do this. And yet he just persisted. He was so impressed with himself. He thought that he could go beyond what God had anointed him to do. And he stepped into a realm that he wasn't anointed to. Even God had struck uh, Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who offered a sacrifice. They were priests, but they did it wrong. And God smote them and fire came out and killed them instantly. So when Uzziah stepped over into the priesthood, God struck him with leprosy. Miriam, the sister of um, Moses, complained and, and told him that you aren't the only one that hears from God. God speaks through us. And, they, and her and her brother were trying to take over the leadership of the Jews. And when that happened, God smote Miriam with uh, leprosy. And she only stayed that way for seven days because Moses interceded, but God struck her. There's instances where, you know, the scripture I quoted out of Psalms chapter 78, verse 49, that he sent evil angels among them. That doesn't mean they were demonic angels, but that's talking about the death angel. He sent a godly angel that smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, and that was the straw that broke their back, and they let the Jews go because of that. God did things like that. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and killed bunches of people because of homosexuality. God destroyed the whole earth except for eight people with the flood in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. And he brought the flood upon the earth. There's an instance where he went out and an angel smote 186,000 Syrians in one night and they all died. And there's instances where God smote people and and hit people with things. And some people, see, say, well, that just violates everything you were saying last night, that God is a good God. No, here is the answer. And this is another point that I'm wanting to get across. Another doctrine that keeps people from really understanding the goodness of God is that they don't understand that there was a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Most people run all of this together and they think that the only difference is one blank page in between Malachi and Matthew. And they think that's the difference. And, you know, again, I could minister on this for weeks. And so I'm trying to condense things and I'm going to just say some things briefly. That's the reason I held back this book. This book is basically a harmony between the old covenant and the new covenant. It looks like that there are two different gods. Under the old covenant, man, you see wrath. If people did something wrong, bam, God had hit them. The wrath of God had come upon them. God was not as merciful. In the new covenant, you see tremendous mercy. And it looks like that either God is schizophrenic 
or there's two different gods. Will the real God please stand up? Is it the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New? And sad to say, most Christians just mix the two together and come up with one impression of God that they just don't know for sure if he's in a good mood or in a bad mood. Is he going to be merciful today or is he going to smite you? And because of this, they come up with doctrines that God is putting all of these terrible things on you. And again, please get this teaching because it goes into a lot of detail. Let me just real quickly, I'm going to say some things. I'm not going to turn to all of the scriptures to verify this, but you can get the books, you can get the CD, the DVDs. I can guarantee you I'm speaking scripture here. In the second chapter, second Kings chapter one, there's an instance where Ahaziah, a king who was a very ungodly king and totally rebellious towards God, his parents were Ahab and Jezebel, two of the most ungodly kings that ever ruled the nation of Israel. And anyway, he got sick and instead of sending to uh, a messenger of God to inquire, he sent to Beelzebub. He was a demon worshiper. And Elijah knew by the Spirit of God what was happening. He intercepted the messengers and he told them to go back and tell Ahaziah that because he inquired of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, he's going to die. He will not live. And when Ahaziah heard about this, he said, go find this man. And he sent out a captain with 50 men and they came to Elijah and they said, Elijah, O thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And Elijah said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your 50. And instantly the fire of God fell from heaven and killed 51 men. So when Ahaziah heard about it, he sent another captain with 50 men. And they came up and they said, oh man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And Elijah said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down and destroy you and your 50. And boom, the fire of God, it says... I believe in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 12, it was the fire of God. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't just Elijah's human ability. The fire of God killed, fell and killed another 51 men, a total of 102 men. Finally, the third captain was sent. And this third captain was a God-fearing man. And he said, oh, thou man of God. He says, I'm just doing what I was ordered to do. Don't kill me. He says, have mercy on me. He says, the previous two captains in their fifties were killed. He says, please have mercy on me. And so Elijah prayed. God told him to go down and he'd protect him. He spoke to Ahaziah and it was fine. Let me present to you. See, some people see things like that and they think, man, this is the way that God is. You mess with God and he's just liable to kill you. Let me say to you that if Jesus would have been present in his physical body, he would have never allowed Elijah to act like that. It wasn't wrong at the time because there was a different way of dealing with people under the old covenant. I'm going to explain that more in just a second. But if Jesus would have been present, Jesus wouldn't have ever treated people that way. That is not a total accurate representation of God. And some of you think, well, where do you get that from? In the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus went to the city of Samaria and around verse 51, he uh, had already ministered in Samaria before. This is where the Samaritan woman at the well had received him and the entire town of Samaria had been uh, born again. I get, you know, that's probably not an accurate statement that every person, but it talked about that the whole city came out and they believed on him. A lot of people there believed on Jesus and yet this time, 
When he went through Samaria, he sent his disciples in there to get him a place to stay. And the Samaritans wouldn't even allow him to come into the town. They wouldn't allow him to stay. And it makes special mention that it was because he was, his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem and they refused to allow him into the town. And when this happened, two of his disciples said, Wilt thou that we call down fire from heaven as Elias did? Talking about Elijah. In other words, they found the Old Testament example where Elijah called fire down out of heaven and killed 102 people. And they said, do you want us to call fire down and kill these people? And Jesus turned around and rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The son of man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And he just went on to another town. Jesus right there rebuked his disciples for wanting to do what was done in 2 Kings chapter 1. Therefore, if Jesus would have been on the earth in his physical ministry in 2 Kings chapter 1, he would have rebuked Elijah. Elijah wasn't wrong at the time because God was dealing with mankind in harshness and judgment and imputing their sins unto them, holding their sins against them. But in the new covenant, we have a total different way of God dealing with us. God is not going to judge us. And man, I got so many things to say here. It's hard to say, not because it's hard to say, but because of the way people hear. It's because of the religious traditions that I'm going to rub somebody's religion wrong right here and I can guarantee you people will be upset, but it's true. And because people don't understand this difference, there are people today that are with the bony finger. They're a prophet and we're going to call fire down. The wrath of God's going to fall on this nation. 9-11 is God judging this nation because we took prayer out of the schools and they're emulating the Old Testament prophets and they're pronouncing judgment and God is going to destroy this nation and God is judging you and that's wrong. There is a dramatic change in the way that God deals with people from the old covenant to the new covenant because of Jesus. Prior to Jesus coming, men were having their sins imputed unto them. Let me show you a scripture on Romans chapter 5 that says this. In Romans chapter 5. In verse 12, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that's talking about Adam, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 13, for until the law, that's talking about the time of Moses, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now that is one radical statement. From the time that Adam sinned until the time that the law was given, which was like 1,600 or close to 2,000 years, basically 2,000 years. The first 2,000 years of existence, God was not imputing man's sins unto him. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to lay to your account. Like, for instance, when you use a credit card, did you know what you're doing? You aren't paying for the merchandise when you give them your credit card. That credit card has 
your financial information embedded in it. And what they do is take that and they send the bill to your credit card company and your credit card company sends you a bill and you have to pay that bill. You have not paid for that thing when you buy it on a credit. All you've done is had it imputed unto you. It's put on your account. And there is a debt that still has to be paid. And if you don't believe that, don't pay your credit card bill and say, hey, I've already given my credit card. I've already signed it and see how it goes. They will hold you accountable. You haven't paid for it yet. All you did was have it imputed unto you. That's what this is talking about. That before the law came, people were sinning, but God wasn't imputing it to them. He wasn't holding it against them. He wasn't judging people according to their sin. That's a radical concept. And again, I encourage you to get this book on the true nature of God because I go into a lot more explanation. And this is major, major point. Again, we have a religious tradition that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, holy God couldn't stand unholy man and he drove them out of the garden because he couldn't tolerate our sin. And this is an image that people have of God that God, holy God, cannot fellowship with unholy man. And then, therefore they teach that you've got to be holy and you've got to do all of these things before God can love you and fellowship with you. And if you aren't healed, it's because you haven't been living holy enough, etc., You know, the truth is, there isn't anybody who deserves the blessing of God. And if you believe that and embrace it, then you are never going to receive from God. Not because you doubt that God has the ability, but you doubt His willingness to use His ability on your behalf because you know that you don't deserve it. That is an Old Testament mentality. Once the law was given... God started holding men's sins against them and punishing them. And there was a wrath and a judgment and fire falling out of heaven. And there were things happening that wasn't the true nature of God. If it had been the true nature of God, God would have treated that people that way from the beginning. But He didn't. He dealt with people as a whole in mercy for the first 2,000 years. Two notable exceptions are when He destroyed the earth with the flood and killed all but eight people on the face of the earth, and when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality and killed hundreds, maybe thousands of people with fire and brimstone. People say, well, that sounds like judgment. Well, it was. But it was actually, if you look at things as a whole, it was an act of mercy towards the human race because sin is like a cancer. You know, I've read some archaeological things about Sodom and Gomorrah and I I couldn't in mixed company even tell you the things that were going on and that they have proof archaeologically that was going on. Bestiality, homosexuality was the rule. Terrible, terrible, terrible things. And it was like a cancer. There was so much evil in Sodom and Gomorrah that if God hadn't have brought judgment upon them and have done something to stop the spread of that sin and that demonic stuff that was going on, then there wouldn't have been a virgin left on the face of the earth for Jesus to have been born through. It was like a cancer. And you know, it's like when you you have an infection or something in your body. You hate to cut off a limb and amputate a finger or cut off a toe. Those are drastic steps. But if that infection is going to spread and if you can't stop the infection, sometimes they will amputate a part of the body and that's judgment on that individual part. But on the body as a whole, it's actually an act of mercy. You're trying to save a life. 
And I believe, just like this scripture says, Romans 5, 13, that prior to the law, God was not imputing men's sins unto them. He wasn't giving them what they deserved. You can prove that. Abraham. Abraham was a man who lied about his wife twice and said, oh, she's my sister. Have sex with her. Do whatever you want to. And instead of God judging him, he judged the people who were innocent in this thing because he had a covenant with Abraham. Abraham married his half-sister, which according to Leviticus chapter 18, if you marry a half-sister, you have to be put to death. It is an abomination in the sight of God. If Abraham would have been living under the law, he would have been put to death. And then his children come along and Jacob, his grandson, married two sisters while the other sister was still alive, which according to Leviticus 18 is a sexual abomination. If you marry two women who are sisters while the other one is still alive, it is an abomination punishable by death. And if you don't kill them, you have to be killed. Strong. Jacob did that. And yet he wrestled with an angel of God and prevailed. God blessed him and made him Israel and he became uh, the, the uh, head of all of Israel. And this was a guy who was living in a sexual abomination. But see, the law hadn't been given yet. God wasn't holding it against them. He was dealing in mercy with people. Jesus showed that God never intended for men to have more than one wife. He said from the beginning, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And yet under the old covenant, uh, David had 13 wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And God blessed them and loved them. And this was never God's intent. Jesus showed that no, God only intended for one man to be married to one woman. That was God's will. And yet God tolerated this. And he says that Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, allowed you to have a divorce. But God never intended this. God intended for you to live with one person. The Lord tolerated things. But when the law came, man, the wrath of God began to start being imputed. God began to start judging people. And so the destruction of the world by a flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was judgment on those individuals. But if you look at the human race as a whole, it was mercy because it was cutting this cancer out. People had become so vile that they were about to pollute the human race to the point that it was unredeemable and God had to do something to limit the spread of it. But just like Romans 5.13 says, until the law Sin was in the world, but as a whole, God was not imputing, holding that sin against them. He was dealing with people like Abraham who were doing things that wouldn't be tolerated under the new covenant. And he tolerated it and gave mercy to them because this was the nature of God. God is a loving God. He's a good God. Instead of God driving Adam and Eve out and saying, I hate you, get out of my presence, you're now sinners, and he drove them out. It says specifically in Genesis chapter 3, around verse 22, 23, it says, therefore he drove them forth from the garden so that they wouldn't put forth their hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The reason he drove them out wasn't because he wanted to get rid of them and he couldn't stand them and he wanted them out of his presence. He did it so that we wouldn't take of the tree of life and eat and live forever in a fallen body. 
You know, some people struggle. You've never been there in your mind. You think, well, that's terrible. He kept us from living forever. But living forever in a corrupted, sinful world with a corrupted body is not good. Just imagine what it would be like if you had, if you were manic depressive and you could never get healed. You were going to live forever as a manic depressive. What if you had Alzheimer's? And yet you're going to live forever. What if you had a child born with uh, handicaps and they're going to live forever like a vegetable? What if evil people like Hitler could not be killed? We were going to live forever and all of the Hitlers and the Mussolinis and the Saddam Husseins and Pharaohs and whoever you want to mention, Jack the Ripper or whatever, were all still alive. It was impossible to kill them. Did you know that death is actually a positive thing in a fallen world because it limits the spread of evil? It, all of these things are temporary. If you get born again someday, we've got a better day coming. We're going to have a glorified body. There's not going to be any sorrow or crying. The Lord didn't kick Adam and Eve out of the garden because he couldn't stand them because in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, he was still walking and talking with them and they offered a sacrifice and he spoke to them in an audible voice and accepted one sacrifice and rejected another. He was still walking and talking with God. God did not just separate man. He used Abraham, who was a man who had serious sins. He used Jacob. He used all of these people. There was tremendous grace and mercy until... The law came. But when the law came, God started holding people's sins against them, punishing them. And here is the basic logic behind it. People were using God's lack of punishment and anger and wrath as approval. You can see this in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis because Cain killed his brother Abel. And instead of God killing him, God put a mark on him that protected him and says, if anybody seeks to kill Cain for what he's done, I'll avenge his death sevenfold. And God extended mercy towards the first murderer on the face of the earth. In contrast to this, does anybody know who the first, what the first sin was that broke the law? The first person that broke the laws? A man who picked up sticks to make a fire and cook food on the Sabbath day. And the very first person that broke the law They didn't know what the punishment was going to be. They knew that he had broken the law about the Sabbath, so they shut him up. And God appeared in a visible form and in an audible voice said, kill him, stone him to death, show him no mercy. So here's the first murderer. God gives mercy to him. But once the law came, the first person to break the law is a man who just picks up sticks to cook a meal the same way he'd been doing probably for 20 or 30 years. But now the Sabbath had been instituted and he didn't observe the laws and God said, kill him. Can you tell that there's a difference in the way that God deals with things before and after the law? The law released the wrath of God. And the reason God did it is because like Cain killed his brother Abel, Well, Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, came along in Genesis chapter 4, around verse 16, somewhere around there. And it says that he spoke to his two wives. He's the first person that ever had more than one wife. And he said, I have killed a man or slain a man to my wounding. And I forget, let's see, have you got the wording up there? 
Anyway, it says, the wording is awkward in the King James, but basically what he did, he killed a man in self-defense. And so basically he's saying that his murder of a man was more justified than Cain's because Cain's was just malicious. Abel hadn't done anything to him, but he killed a man in self-defense. And so he says, therefore, if God will avenge Cain sevenfold, he'll avenge Lamech seventy and sevenfold. God didn't say that. That was Lamech. He was just supposing that my murder was more justified and so therefore if Cain got by with it, I'll get by with it. And see, people begin to compare themselves among themselves, measure themselves by themselves, which the Bible says is not wise. And they begin to start thinking, well, sin isn't so bad. Cain got by with it. Lamech got by with it. Nobody's died. And so they just started murdering. They started committing adultery. They started being homosexuals. There was no punishment. There was no wrath. People were misinterpreting God's grace and mercy as acceptance and approval. And because of this, sin was multiplying at such a fast rate that even though God wasn't punishing sin, sin is a direct inroad of the devil into your life. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you are just allowing the devil to come in and he comes for no other purpose, John 10.10, except to steal, kill, and to destroy. Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag if you give him an inroad into your life. And so... Even though God wasn't judging sin because this is the nature of God. He was a merciful God and he was wanting to have mercy on people and use people like Abraham who were living in sexual abominations and yet God wasn't holding it against them. God was being merciful unto them. That was the nature of God. People began to start misusing his mercy. They lost their perspective on what right and wrong was. They no longer knew right from wrong because it was all relative to, well, other people are doing it and it's okay. So eventually, in order to preserve the human race until the seed could come, Jesus, who would redeem us from our sins, God had to limit sin. So how did he do it? Real simple. You go over there and pick up sticks on the Sabbath day and I'll kill you. Do this and you're dead. Do this and I'll smite you with leprosy. Boom. Boy, God began to start blasting people and the wrath of God was poured out. And people, the sad thing is, people from our perspective, looking back, think this is the way that God always was. No, there was 2,000 years that God was merciful. Merciful and He loved people and used people. Abraham's the only person in the Old Testament called the friend of God. And Abraham was a jerk in a lot of ways. He was wrong. Abraham did some severely wrong things and yet he believed God and God's counted faith unto him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. God was dealing with people in mercy. He was gracious. That's the real nature of God. God is a good God. He could have told Adam and Eve how rotten they were. But you know what? All they knew was that they were naked. That was the most minor of all of their transgressions. God could have said, you know, if he would have just taken, let's just take the people on the front row right here. And if he had gone down and says, let me show you the damage that you've done to this woman's life, the hurt, the pain, the death, the suffering, the heartache, the heartbreak. And if he had just gone through 
Not even show all of the wars. Not even show all of the rapists and the murderers and other things. Just show the things that have happened to people here on the front row. You know what? Adam and Eve couldn't have lived. How would they have ever lived with themselves? Look what we've started. Look what we brought into the human race. The Lord could have told them how rotten and how bad they were, but he didn't want them to know that. He was still walking and talking and fellowshipping with them even after he kicked them out of the garden because he didn't kick them out out of rejection. He just didn't want them to live forever in that fallen state, so he separated them from this tree of, the, of uh, life. But when he finally... He had to do something to restrain sin, so he started bringing judgment on it. And the fear of God caused people to quit living in as much sin. It restrained the amount of sin. It was an effective tool. Like, for instance, in the New Testament, Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. You know, God destroyed the whole earth except for eight people in the days of Noah because sin had gotten so bad. And he says, when he comes again, it's going to be approaching back to the same evil and the same condition it was in the days of Noah. Something happened in the days of Noah that put a huge restraint upon sin. And you know what it was? That Noah happened 1,656 years after the fall of Adam, and it was only about, I forget the exact timing, but just a few hundred years later when the law came, and the law is the thing that put the fear in people and restrained them. It's very similar to a parent who wants to discipline your children. You know what? You don't like hitting your children. You shouldn't. It's child abuse if you like hitting them. But what you do, you've got to train your children that things are wrong. And if you wait until they're 20 years old so you can sit down and reason with them and explain everything and stuff like that, they're going to be a total mess. If you wait until they're two, that's why you have the terrible twos is because you haven't already trained them. You've let them become spoiled. And so you know what you got to do? You got to restrain a child. But how do you teach a little child that doesn't yet even talk or all of these things? How do you teach a child right from wrong? They don't understand God and the devil and good and evil and things like this. But you know what they can understand? You go over there and do that again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not even know that there is a God or devil, heaven or hell. They may not understand demons. They don't know any of this, but they know that if they go take that toy from their sister again, that they're going to get a spanking. And so when the thought comes, they'll say, no. And you can teach them to resist evil, to resist wrong out of nothing but fear. And that's what child training is all about. You can't wait until your children are old enough to explain to them. Now, if you go over there and do this, you are yielding to the devil. The devil is the one who is selfish. God is a giver. The devil is a taker. So every time you just think about yourself, you're being selfish. And so you're giving place to the devil. And the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So you know what? If you do this, you'll never have friends. He's going to steal your friends from you. If you get a job, you'll never be able to keep your job because you are selfish and you aren't thinking about giving. If you get married, your marriage is going to fall apart. Try and tell that to a one-year-old kid. They can't understand stuff like this. But you know what a one-year-old can understand? You do that again and I'll spank you. And they'll say, no, I'm not going to do it again. And they'll resist it. Well, in a sense, that's what the law was. 
Before people got born again, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man or mind cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Before people got born again, they couldn't understand spiritual things. So how do you reach carnal people that don't have any spiritual perception? Do this and I'll smite you dead. I'll call fire down from heaven and kill 102 men. That was never God's nature. Just the same as it's not automatically the nature of a parent to hit your kids. You don't want to do that. But you've got to teach them consequences. And the scripture says the rod and reproof gives wisdom. If you spare the rod, you hate your child. Today, people are saying, oh, I love my child too much. No, you hate them. You aren't teaching them right from wrong. You need to give them consequences. You need, and, it, and giving them a little swat on the bottom is far superior to letting Satan destroy them. And that's what's happening if you don't correct your children. And so God... Amen. And so God began to start punishing sin, not because he hated us, not because he wasn't a gracious God and willing to operate in mercy, but for a period of time we were so dull, sin was perverting the entire human race, God had to put a restraint upon it. And when he started punishing sin... Fear, fear came, and that's what the law did. But the law was only temporary. This is what Galatians chapter 3, the law was until the seed could come. The law was not intended to be for the New Testament Christian. We aren't supposed to be living under the law. It was a temporary period of time. There's been approximately 6,000 years since the fall of Adam and Eve that men have lived And the first 2,000 years, God dealt with people in mercy. And then there was 2,000 years of the law. And since the time of Christ, the body of Christ was never intended to be under the law. They weren't supposed to relate to God and be fearful that God's going to judge them and punish them. You can find examples of harsh treatment by God in the Bible, but they're all Old Testament examples and you can't show me a one of them where it changed the person and made them better. It was punishment. It was a curse. Miriam was a great leader of the people in Israel. After she spoke against Moses and she got leprosy, the next time she's mentioned, Miriam died and the people lamented. Her leadership was over. It didn't make her better. It it wasn't given to be a blessing the way that the church is said it was a judgment. It was a punishment. And our judgment and punishment has been placed on Jesus. And praise God, God's not going to strike you with leprosy because he struck Jesus with leprosy. He won't ever do that to you. You can find examples of God smiting people. You can find uh, David when he sinned that God killed the child that was born because great damage has been done. And I've got to show people that this is unacceptable, even among the king. And God struck a little baby dead. But that was under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, God would never do that. He's placed your punishment upon Jesus. You are out from under the law. You are not under that law anymore. And man, there are hundreds, thousands of scriptures that talk about that the law was a yoke, that the law was a burden which our parents couldn't bear. Why should you try and bear it? Get out from under the law. The, the law works death. The law is a ministry of condemnation. 
If you're condemned today, you've got an Old Testament law mentality. You haven't understood the new covenant. If you feel unworthy today, you have related to God under the Old Testament law, which Christians are not supposed to do. Our legalistic mixing of the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace has really confused a lot of people and made people think that God's going to judge me and hit me the way he did people in the Old Testament. Man, that really wasn't the true nature of God. That's the reason he restrained himself for 2,000 years before he gave it. It was only temporary, Galatians says, until Jesus should come. We are now redeemed from the law. God does not want you to live that way. It should not be affecting you. You should not be relating to these people. We sing songs today. Like, for instance, from Psalms chapter 51, there's a song that says... um, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And we sing that song. That is as wrong as it could possibly be. That was David saying those things after his sin with Bathsheba. But we've got the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet we pray, oh God, don't leave me. We pray and say, oh God, come and meet with us today. When he says, I'm always with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. It was appropriate for David to say, don't leave me because he didn't have a promise. He didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He didn't have a promise that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We've got better promises. And for us to pray and say, oh God, don't leave me. Oh God, don't take away your anointing from me. Oh God, don't judge me. It's a slap in the face of Jesus. It's an insult to what Jesus came to do. And it's religious tradition that makes the word of God of none effect. There is a difference between the old covenant law and the new covenant grace. And you have to have a little bit of discernment to be able to recognize, is this law or grace? And most people today can't distinguish between the two. You know, I'm still here in Romans. Let me just use a few verses right here. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. That is one radical statement. Somebody said, well, everybody's under the law. No. The law wasn't given for everybody. Did you know that the law was never intended for the Gentile church? It was given to the Jews. Gentiles should have never have been taught the law. That was a covenant to the Jews that scared them, that punished them, that caused them to live a separated life and preserve the seed so that there would be a virgin and that the Messiah could be born. But once he came, God never intended for the Gentiles to be under the law and yet the church has preached the law and made most Christians today legalistic, law-minded and we were never supposed to have been under it in the first place. Whatever the law says, it saith to them who are under the law. And here's the purpose of the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law never set anybody free. It bound us. It made us aware of our sin. It stopped your mouth. It took away your excuse and it made you guilty. If you feel guilty, if you feel condemned, you're under the law. You have not got your mind renewed. Under the new covenant... Hebrews chapter 10 verse 2 says that we should have no more conscience of sin. You shouldn't even be sin conscious. That sounds like blasphemy to most Christians. 
And yet that's what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. There should be no more sin conscience. In verse 20, this is Romans 3, 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. God, the law focuses your attention on sin and shows you your unworthiness for the purpose of trying to get you to turn from your sin but it can't set you free and it actually empowers sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the strength of sin is the law. The law strengthened sin. It didn't strengthen you in your battle against sin. The law strengthened sin. Why would God give something to strengthen sin? Because the truth is sin had already beat all of us and we just didn't know it. We thought God was going to accept me because I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I'm better than this person over here. And so I believe God's going to accept me. God says, you think you're good enough? Thou shalt not. And all of a sudden sin revived and rose up and you realized, oh God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And that was the purpose of the law was to make you realize you can't save yourself. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? You know what? I'm a better sinner than most of you. I've never said a word of profanity in all of my 59 years. I'll be 60 in a couple of months. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. I'm Mr. Righteous. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I've sinned. I've come short of the glory of God. And you know what? I needed to be brought out of my deception. And so... Here was the law. And you you know, I could spend an hour making this point. I'm not going to do it. But some of you think, well, boy, you live such a holy life. You must not have had any guilt. I probably was more guilt-ridden and felt more unworthy than some of you that were out living in adultery and smoking dope and getting drunk. Because, man, I had the law. And even though I didn't do some of the bad, bad, bad things that people talk about, I guarantee you, I felt sin conscious. I was so unworthy. I was so guilty. I used to dream when I was a kid, six, seven, eight, nine years old. I used to have dreams that I had smoked a cigarette and I got caught and they turned me to the police and the police turned me over to my mother. And after my mother had beaten me, I woke up in hell and I was burning in hell because I had smoked a cigarette. And that was a reoccurring dream. I had that at least once every six months for a decade. That I had gone to hell because I smoked a cigarette. I would go into a bathroom and see profanity scribbled on the wall and I'd repent and cry for two weeks because I'd seen it. I didn't write it. I didn't like it. But just the fact that it had entered my mind, I was defiled. Some of you think, well, you were messed up. I was. That's what religion will do to you. And all of you are in varying stages of being messed up. That was religion. The law wasn't given to make you free. The law was given to bind you so that you could see what a terrible sinner you were and you'd turn from being. But once you come to Jesus, there's no point in you understanding how sorry you are because all of your sin, past, present, and even future sins were placed on Jesus. And God's not mad at you. Praise the Lord. 
Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now you can get right with God without keeping the law. The, here's another way of saying it. The law wasn't given so you could keep it. The law was given to show you, you can't live holy. It was given to condemn you. Most people, you know, like for instance, over in the 22nd chapter of the book of Leviticus, if you were going to be a priest, which the New Testament says all of us are now kings and priests unto the Lord. If you aren't a priest, then you aren't born again. That's the reason you don't have to have somebody with their collar turned around backwards to stand in between you and God. You are all kings and priests to God. Amen. So the qualifications for a priest over there were that, you know what? You couldn't be left-handed and be a priest. You couldn't have a mole anywhere on your body. If you had a mole anywhere on your body, you were defiled. You couldn't be a priest. You couldn't have a flat nose or a broken bone. You couldn't be flat-footed. You couldn't be stoop-shouldered. You had to have good posture. You couldn't have poor eyesight. If you wear glasses, you, you wouldn't qualify as being a priest. You had to have perfect eyesight. Now, why did God give all of these commands? Is it so that you could go burn the moles off of your body? Is it so that you could take your glasses off and squint trying to look like you're all right? No, but the priest, if you, if you think that you can approach unto God on your own, if you want to be a priest, the Old Testament law says, all right, you think you're good enough? Let me show you the standard. And he just raised the standard, the bar is so high that everybody says, oh God, I've got one of these things. None of us were perfect. And, oh God, if this is what you deserve, have mercy on me. And he says, that's it. That's what I was trying to get you to, is to a place where you just call out for mercy. That's like the man who went to heaven and he got there and angel met him at the gate. He says, before we can let you in, we got to give you a test. See if you qualify. So the guy says, well, okay. And he says, you got to have a hundred points to get into heaven. He says, well, I think I can do that. And, he said, and so the angel says, all right, were you faithful to your wife? And he said, man, I was faithful to my wife. I never cheated. I never lusted. I was holy. I was separated unto my wife. And he says, that's one point. <laughs> he says, one point? And he says, did you tithe? Oh, yeah, I tithe. Well, that's worth half a point. Well, I went to church every time. That's worth a quarter of a point. And man, after two or three points, this guy just, ex, ex, you know, giving out all of his goodness. And he says, oh my God, if I got to have a hundred points, I just need the mercy of God. And the angel goes, bingo, come on in. Amen. <laughs> See, that's the purpose of the law. For those of you who thought I'm really a good person, God says, thou shalt not. And all of us. See, religion is interpreted as, oh, I've got to do step one through 10,000 to be accepted with God. And nobody believes they can do all of them. So God, I'm not perfect, but I believe you great on a curve. Even though I'm not perfect, I'm, I'm in the top 10 percentile and I believe that you're going to accept me. No, the Bible says in James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you have done one thing wrong in your life, it wipes out all of your good and you deserve to go to hell. You need a savior. You can't stand on your own goodness. That was the purpose of the law was to beat you down and to make you so that the only way you could look was up. 
You know, believe it or not, I'm, I'm about to quit. I'm not through. I'm just going to quit. But over here in Romans chapter 4, let me show you a couple other verses. In verse uh, 15, it says, Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. The law is what released the wrath of God. And now the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And we are not supposed to be living under that any longer. Romans chapter 6 Verse 15, it says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. No, I'm not saying we don't sin. But this does make an important statement that we are not under the law but under grace. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were ill. We are delivered from the law. We aren't under the law. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm just going to read some of these very quickly. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. And it goes on and quotes these scriptures about how that the law is changed. In verse uh, 18, it says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. The word disannulling, the word annul, if you annul a marriage, it means it's just as if it never happened. It's like you never got married. The word disannul is an overstatement. If something is annulled, it's just like it never happened. The word disannul means an absolute abolishment, destruction. The law doesn't even exist for the believer today. There still is a purpose for an unbeliever. But for the believer, the law shouldn't even be in your um, consciousness. You shouldn't even be relating to God, thinking on the basis of, have I done this and done this and done this? That's an Old Testament law mentality, and it just counters all of that. There's so many scriptures. In verse... um, 28, it says, For the law maketh man high priest which had infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore, showing that there is a separation between the Old Testament law and the New Testament grace. In chapter 8 and verse 6, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Jesus, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their heart, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That's been interpreted that all Jews are going to be born again. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that every born again person isn't going to have to have somebody tell them about the Lord and them just learn it intellectually. But every born again person will experience the Lord for himself, have a personal relationship. They will all know him personally. It won't be 
just something you hear other people talk about. In verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Man, that is totally contrary to what most of us believe. Most of us believe that every time you sin, well, no wonder you're sick. No wonder God hadn't answered your prayer. You aren't holy. And we believe that God is imputing sin unto us. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. We have been redeemed from this. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. For the first 2,000 years, God didn't impute man's trespasses. Then there was the law where he did impute it. And now, since the time of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled unto God. We are supposed to be doing the same thing Jesus did, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. And yet most ministers today are saying, God's going to get you for that sin. God's going to take it out of your hide. You won't get a prayer answered. God's judging you. God's going to judge America because we aren't all of these things. People are saying if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we are ungodly. But the truth is, if God did judge America, he'd have to apologize to Jesus because he's put our wrath and our punishment upon Jesus. So does this mean, some of you are thinking, so does this mean that we can just go live in sin and do whatever? And No, we're in the process of destroying ourselves. Every time you yield to sin, you are allowing Satan to come in to steal, kill, and to destroy. And America is in the process of being destroyed. We cannot last long with the value system that we have. You go back in history, every culture, every culture that has ever started embracing the immorality and the ungodliness that we are embracing has not lasted long. Unless there is a major change in this nation, we are in the process of destroying ourselves. But God isn't doing it. God's not judging us. God's not the one that's punishing us. He placed our punishment upon Jesus. You still need to live holy, but not in order to be accepted by God, but in thanksgiving because of the goodness of God. If you would ever understand that God is a good God and understand that we've been redeemed from this Old Testament law and God is not judging us and God's not striking people with leprosy and God's not making your children sick because you did something wrong and He's punishing you and God's not the one who's letting you die because you haven't been reading your daily Bible readings and praying and going to church or paying your tithes. If you were to ever understand how good God is, you'd serve God more accidentally than you've ever served Him on purpose before. You would be so excited about God that you'd wind up living holier than you've ever lived before and there would be no torment, no fear with it. You would serve God out of love and not out of fear. Brothers and sisters, there's a difference between the Old Testament law and if we don't understand that, then this Old Testament law is against the promises of the New Testament. This is exactly what Jesus talked about when he said, you can't take an old patch and put it on a new garment because when you wash it, it'll tear and it'll break it. Or you can't put new wine in an old wineskin because as it ferments, it'll burst. He wasn't talking about agriculture and 
how to take care of your clothes. He was using those as examples that to people saying, you know, that we used to fast and we did all this stuff. He says, look, it's a new covenant. You can't take the old and put it on the new. You can't put the new on the old. It just doesn't fit. They're incompatible. The Old Testament law wasn't bad. It was necessary to shut us up and to make us realize our sin so that we would quit being self-righteous and we would come to God. But once you've come to God, the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. And if you try and relate to God based on your own goodness and how well you're performing, it's a new patch on an old garment. It's new wine and an old wineskin. It doesn't fit. You can't live that way. It's what's making the word of God of none effect. Many of us say, oh, God loves me and God is faithful, but then we turn right around and I know I've sinned and therefore God couldn't bless me. That's old covenant. You need to realize we got a new covenant. And I tell you, that is just a small portion of the truths that are in this book on the true nature of God. I encourage you to get this because, man, you need to understand the things that I've talked about. And there's not one out of a thousand Christians that understands we're under a new covenant. They mix the two together and it pollutes it. You can't, they don't mix. It's like oil and water. They just don't mix. You can't mix the old covenant and the new covenant. This is why Paul got into trouble. Because Paul was preaching a new covenant. Paul was preaching the grace of God and the legalistic Jews, the Christian legalistic Jews of his day were out to kill him. It's the same thing today. We got a lot of legalistic Christians who are just incensed at what I've said. And yet I've used hundreds of scriptures. It just is amazing to me how people, man, I'm quoting scripture and what they're doing is quoting doctrine and tradition and yet it's just so ingrained in people that they can't change.